Good morning. God has blessed us with a beautiful earth, and we should be thankful for it. Just a couple of announcements as we begin our worship. Uh, you see there in your bulletin that we will have a congregational meeting following the worship service on Sunday, December 6th. And the purpose of this congregational meeting is to approve the 2021 budget and to elect a treasurer and assistant treasurer. If for some reason we are unable to meet on December 6th, we will either reschedule or make arrangements for some type of electronic meeting so that we can go ahead and get this approved um, at, at some point. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not in dire trouble if we don't get it approved on the 6th, but um, we do have options ahead of us if we need to. So my hope, my prayer is, is that we don't have to cease meeting, um, but uh, we never know in this, in this world today. Also, we are looking at beginning an outreach ministry to um, uh, shut-ins and other people within our communities that may be suffering uh, more than normal under the severe isolation of this pandemic. And so um, we'll have more information as, that, as uh, we kind of put these things together uh, some more, get a list of things that we can uh, add in these care packages. But please be in prayer for that and for the people that God will bring to us uh, that we can help. Um, are there any other announcements? Uh, Bible study will not meet this evening. So, All right, our call to worship today comes from the book of Psalms as normal. And it comes from Psalm 80, a psalm of Asaph. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Then down to verse 16. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we have gathered to worship you, whether we have answered your call and gathered in this place or answered your call and gathered around a computer or a phone as we listen to the recording of this worship service. We have gathered to worship because you have called us here. Part of your process of restoring us, part of your process of reviving us is remind us that we is reminding us that we live life in your presence. And so, Lord, as we gather in this place, remind us that you are here and be here with us and be honored by the worship that we give. We do thank you that your son has done the mediatorial work so that our worship can approach you and be honorable and be precious to you. Lord, our worship is is made up of so many different elements, whether it's the reading and teaching of the word, whether it's the the, the spiritual and the, the growing hearing of the word whether it's the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, or prayers. And so, Lord, we now pray to you, continuing to pray as you have taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please take Bible songs in your hands and turn to Bible song 171. Revive us. We are reminded in this time of dryness, in this time of pandemic, that it is God who revives that it is God who saves, 
And so let us stand and sing Bible Song 171, Revive Us. Please be seated. As we enter our time of worship, we were reminded that we worship the holy and the righteous God, the God who calls us to be holy as he is holy. And we're reminded as well that oftentimes we fail, we falter, we stumble in that path of righteousness. And so let us take a few moments to bow our heads to confess our sins silently before God. As you have bowed your heads in confession, now lift them up and hear with joy the words that the King of glory has come in and he has purchased salvation and forgiveness for his people. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 8. We will begin in verse 12. Chapter 8 is kind of Rome. Paul's summary of what he has taught so far in the uh, before he gets into an application of our justification and the relationship between the church and the nation of Israel. He, he gives some glorious messages of what that justification means for his people. And so hear these words from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs 
heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. God has commanded his people to bring their tithes into the storehouse, and we as his people do bring our tithes and our offerings as a means of worship. We have the basket here. We have the plate in the narthex there, the entryway, where you can place your tithes and offerings. And as many of you have done, please uh, use the postal service as well um, to mail in your tithes and offerings. Thank you to those who have continued to give during this time of pandemic, this time of coronavirus. We do appreciate that. And God uses what you have given to further his work in this community and in his kingdom. God and Father above, we do seek to give you glory, worship, and honor through what we give to your church, to your work. Please take what has been given today. May you be honored by it. May you be glorified by it. May it be a worthy worship to you. And may it be used so that your kingdom, that started as though a mustard seed, can grow into a place of life and a place of refreshing in our community, and in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing and take the insert there in your bulletin. In this world of sickness, in this world of sorrow, it is good to be reminded that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and because He is good and can be trusted, that it is well. So let us remain standing and sing, It is well with my soul from your insert in your bulletin.
Please be seated. As we go to the Lord in prayer, please keep um, all the people affected by the coronavirus in your prayers. We, Chris and Missy have both tested positive. They're still home. There's serious cold symptoms, um, but they are struggling. Uh, so please keep them in your prayer. Uh, Joni is traveling to, uh, uh, or has traveled to Charlotte once again, spend some time there with her sister, and um, so we'll be gone for a little bit, so we keep her and her family in our prayers. Carol had a pacemaker put in this week and is doing well, last I heard, so please continue to keep her in your prayers. Ruth is not feeling well, last I heard, either, so please um, pray for her and for Bill. Um, we have prayed with the Farlows quite a bit for Artie Chilton, and he passed away this week. So um, just pray for his family and Don's nephew and Don's nephew's wife and Don's nephew's son have all tested positive as well for the coronavirus. So please keep them in your prayers. Um, we have all of our normal prayer requests on there. Um, Katie, Libby, Letha, Roy, um, John Morgan, who is Roy's brother-in-law, had some heart issues and is recovering well from those also. Are there any other prayer requests this week? Well, if not, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for all of the many blessings that you give to us. We, we thank you for prayer, which is a blessing that oftentimes we take for granted. And yet it is a privilege and a blessing to us to be able to approach your throne, to bring concerns to you, things that weigh our hearts, weigh on our hearts heavily, to bring joys to you, things that bring us great pleasure and great joy in this world, and to commune and to fellowship with you through prayer. Lord, even the groanings that we have oftentimes um, are used by the Holy Spirit to communicate to you. And so we do lift up these prayer requests. We pray for this coronavirus. We ask that you remove it from our church. People that we know, people that we love are suffering with it, whether it's Ann Robinson and her brother and her mom, whether it's uh, Chris and Missy, whether it's other people that we 
know of but don't know who are suffering with this virus, we ask that you remove it. We know that you are sovereign over even this virus, this this molecule that attaches. It's an unseen threat. Uh, Lord, we know that you are sovereign over that and that you can wipe it out in a heartbeat with a mere thought, with a mere word. And we ask that you do that, that you remove it from our world, that you remove it from our lives, that you remove the fear that this virus has caused in us, that you make that fear into peace. Yes, being cautious, but not giving in to fear. And so we do lift up our brothers and sisters, our friends and our loved ones who are struggling under this virus. We lift up Carol and ask for continued recovery for her. We lift up Ruth and ask that you help her to feel better. We lift up Michael's family and ask that you give them sympathy. We lift up Artie's friends and family and ask that you give them comfort and strength as well. Lord, we pray once again that you meet those who are lonely and that you fill them with your presence. Bring us to them. Bring them to us so that we may in some way, even in this time of isolation, in this time of of social distancing, that we may somehow bring to them the pleasure of human contact, the pleasure of human company, the pleasure of your grace and your mercy as shown in friendships and conversation. Lord, we lift up all of those people who are on our hearts, family members, friends who do not know you, family members, friends who are suffering with cancers, with illnesses. We lift them up to you and ask that you bring them healing, that you bring them the gospel, and that you draw them to you. Lord, this is a season in our calendar when we are to be focused on thanksgiving. Lord, it's easy to jump to Christmas the celebration of your birth, of your son's birth, uh, the celebration of getting stuff. Forgive us for wanting too much stuff. But Lord, we take a time to stop this week and to be thankful. Lord, forgive me for not being thankful enough for all of the wonderful things that you have provided for me. And forgive us as a church for not being thankful enough for the things that you have given to us. Lord, I do thank you for this church and for this congregation. I thank you for the privilege of serving it as your under shepherd. Lord, you know me. You know how faulty and fumbling and stumbling that I am. And yet you have called me here. And I thank you for that. I thank you for these people. I thank you for their willingness to gather and to worship. I thank you for their willingness to serve and to reach out to their communities. I thank you for the love that you have showered upon them and the love that they have for you. I thank you specifically for my elders, for your elders, excuse me. I thank you for Bob and for Jerry and for Chris and the service that they give to you in seeking to lead your flock spiritually. I thank you for your deacons, for Kevin, for Janet and for Betty and for the work that they do to manage the physical property of this church, to and to uh, take care of the people of this church as they have need, and to look into areas of the community where we can help to alleviate suffering according to your glory. I thank you for the women's ministry of this church and the outreach that they do, the outreach that they have done in seeking to provide nail polish to our local nursing facilities so that the women there might have um, just some moments of joy in their life. I thank you for the community in which we minister. I thank you for the rich history of this area, whether it's surrounding the fairgrounds or surrounding the the history of Greenbrier County or the, the history of our state, the history of our country. I just thank you for this community that you have placed us in, a community that oftentimes Uh, is willing to help, is willing to reach out, is willing to um, seek to alleviate suffering in its midst. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the fact that I can stand here and bring my prayers to you without fear that you will judge me for my sins because you have judged them in Christ and on the cross. 
And I thank you that you loved me enough that even while I was a sinner, that Jesus died for me to satisfy your wrath, to satisfy your will, so that I might have grace, so that I might have mercy. I thank you for my family. I thank you for parents who who sought to raise me in the fear, in the admonition of the Lord. Thank you for my brother and sister and for the sanctification that they brought to my life in many, many times. And thank you for my wife and my children and the blessing that you have given to me through them. Lord, I thank you for your creation. Lord, I see the blue skies. I see the sunrise. I see the leaves change colors. I I see even those skeletal remains of trees in the fall and in the winter. And I am astounded by your glory. I am astounded that you thought it proper and good, not needful, just proper and good, that you create all things and plant humanity in the midst of this earth. I thank you for the music ministry of this church. I thank you for all the ministries that you have led us to in this place. And I thank you for the future that you have for your people here in Fairley and in Greenbrier County and around the world. Lord, I thank you for your word. Where would we be without your word? We would be lost, lost in more ways than we could think or imagine. And yet you decided You ordained that you would accommodate yourself to human speech and to human reading and reveal yourself and reveal your salvation in the written word. Thank you for inspiring it. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to study and to teach it. I pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please turn with me. In your Bibles, please take them up and turn to Proverbs chapter 16. We will begin in verse 31 of Proverbs 16, and we will read through verse 6. Um, I am thankful to God for each and every one of you, whether you're sitting here or whether you're listening to me in a recording that God has brought us together in this place, a place where I thought I would never... West Virginia was never on my radar, to be honest with you, and yet God had ordained my life and y'all's life and the life of this church to bring us together, and I am thankful. I don't express it enough. I'm thankful to Nancy for her willingness to always play for us and to play so well, to, to the elders for your work, to the deacons for your work, to the women of the church, especially the ones who show up on a weekly basis to clean and to protect us. Um, I am very thankful, and I I thank God frequently for you, and um, I felt in this time of thanksgiving I should let you know that I am thankful for you. So if you have your Bibles, please pick them up and follow along with me as I read, beginning in Proverbs 16.31. Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained by a righteous life. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A wise servant will rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. A wicked man listens to evil lips. A liar pays attention to a malicious tongue. He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. Let's pray. To the God who adopts servants of sin to be his sons, we come to you today asking, that you remind us that you will bring to completion the good work that you have begun in each of us. That work was begun by the finished work of Jesus and applied to us day by day by your Holy Spirit. We often grow weary under the load of this work, but you use your word to help to bring the work to completion. Lord, I pray that today you open our ears, that you open our eyes, that you open our hearts 
so that we can go grow closer to you and closer to the holiness that you have ordained for us. Remind us that as we pursue our holiness, we are to pursue things that are excellent, that are pure, that are blameless. Open my mouth today so that I might speak clearly to your people. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The outbreak of COVID-19 in 2020 has revealed quite a bit to us in our world. It has revealed to us that oftentimes we misplace our faith when we put it in governments that are unable to offer us the safety and protection we think that they can. It is revealed to us once again that life is fragile as we consider a, a microscopic organism is wreaking so much havoc. It is revealed to us our unwillingness to work together as a people and our need for a life-changing message of salvation. And... It has revealed to many of us some people's true hair color. In this section of Proverbs, Solomon opens and closes with a discussion of age, whether there is gray hair or grandchildren. He opens and closes with this because it highlights characteristics and benefits of pursuing wisdom. Today, we are going to see how Solomon talks about wisdom as a lifelong pursuit that comes through testing. And we'll see that as he looks at the testing, he highlights how we can fail the test. And he shows us how we can be sure of testing well also. And in looking at these three things, the lifelong pursuit of wisdom, failing the test and testing well, It is my hope that we will see that we should walk the lifelong path of growing in patience and self-control because we are adopted as the children of God. First, the pursuit of wisdom is a lifelong pursuit. In chapter 16, verse 31, Solomon highlights the lifelong nature of the pursuit of righteousness or wisdom. Remember that oftentimes in the book of Proverbs, Solomon uses these two words interchangeably. The crown of glory, the symbol of honor or glory is given to those who have gray hair. Now, since I am 51 and have an inordinate amount of that, I looked into the original language and it's worse than I thought. Thankfully, I am not elderly, but that's how the word is used in other places, even though my hair might give cry to other to to a different fact than that. But. Not everyone who has gray hair, not everyone who is elderly can claim the crown of glory. It comes to those with gray hair and who have received that gray hair through a righteous life. Now, in addition to the idea of gray hair, we need to look at the word attained here in verse 31. Attained is a word that oftentimes means caught or found But much of its usage in the ancient Near East, as well as in the Bible, is in an agricultural context. The word attained focuses on the harvest, but it includes that entire process of planting, of cultivating, of watering, of weeding, and yes, finally, of harvesting. You and I cannot expect to walk to our garden in June and magically find tomatoes there unless we have done some work, even with those volunteer plants that just come up because maybe we left a tomato over the winter. Even they need cultivating. They need harvesting. We must plant. We must protect the seedling. We must protect the grown plant from weeds and insects and predators. We must water. We must weed. We must balance sunshine and shade in order to get to that point where we have tomatoes or cucumbers or squash. Squash maybe need a little less work than at least the zucchini. Wisdom is the same way. You will not merely walk into your life once you have reached a certain age and find yourself wise. It takes work of study. It takes work of memorization. It takes work of applying and sometimes applying wrongly the principles of wisdom to life's situation. But we are not the only ones who take an active role in the cultivation of wisdom. God takes a very active role. And in verse 3 of chapter 17, we see how. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold. 
but the Lord tests the heart. A crucible is a, is a vessel that is designed to withstand high heat so that you can melt metal in the crucible. If you've ever melted metal in a crucible, you'll see that as the metal melts, sometimes the impurities within the metal will float to the top and can then be skimmed off so that you have pure metal left over at the bottom. Many times, if you want to test the purity of a metal, you will take a portion of it and melt it to see how many other metals are in there. And just like the crucible is designed to have heat applied to it so that you can test the purity of a metal such as silver or gold, God tests us in a crucible as well to see whether our hearts are pure, are righteous, are wise. Now, there are many different ways that God tests us. He tests us through temptation. He tests us through hardship. He tests us sometimes through success. But 17.1 shows us a very specific way in which God tests us. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting and with strife. God tests us within our families and our family structures. Now, this can be in nuclear families in which God tests us, a, a husband, a wife, and children. It can be in extended families that God tests us. God tests us in the relationships between parents and ch- children, in the relationships between spouses, in the relationships between children in laws and parents in laws, in blended families with step parents and stepchildren. He tests us with that one crazy aunt or uncle that we all have. There are myriad family relationships that God can use to test us and to seek to grow wisdom and righteousness in us. And while the family structure of a man and a wife and children is foundation of societal relationships in God's creation, since the fall of man into sin, those relationships have been strained, to say the least. When you put more than one sinful, selfish, greedy person in a room, those selfish desires get out of control and they clash. Even redeemed people struggle with the interpersonal relationships of family and friends and church because our sin nature still gets in the way. But God uses these interpersonal clashes to show us our hearts and to push us through the process of plowing up the hard soil of our hearts so that the good news of our adoption as children of God can sprout fruit in us that leads to wisdom and righteousness. In family relationships, family testings are lifelong processes. I have been in a family ever since I was born in one way, shape, or form. And we won't see this finished process until we see Jesus face to face. But Solomon does give us clues as to how We can know whether we are failing the tests that God brings us to in families or whether we are testing well. First, failing the test, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 17. A wicked man listens to evil lips. A liar pays attention to malicious tongue. He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. The first way we can see is that we fail the test is there in verse 4. Do we double down on our wickedness? A wicked man is going to seek uh, um, advice. He's going to seek counsel from those who are evil and those who are malicious. Modern psychology, when it seeks to work with conflict today, tries to find ways in which selfishness can be balanced within the family structure. Now, that can be done a little bit, the smaller the family. But the larger the family, the more difficult it is to balance selfishness. Modern psychology, and I realize I'm painting with broad brushes here, does not seek to remove the selfishness or the pride. It seeks to affirm your worth, your esteem, your own self-idolatry, and it seeks to teach you how to feed your own idolatry while not letting it get in the way of the other person's idolatry. And if you can't handle that, if these two self-idols just can't get along, well, in order to protect your own worth, your own self-esteem, get out. Leave. 
When tested, the wicked will grow stronger in their evil speech, in their malicious attitudes. We'll see here in a little bit that that this testing God brings us into is designed to remove selfishness and greed. But we fail when we feed the selfishness and the greed when we are tested in the family situation. We also show that we fail God's testing when we resort to mockery and rejoicing over other people's misfortune. Consider verse 5. He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. How do you respond when you are confronted with somebody who's asking you for help because they are in dire straits? Honestly, our temptation in our culture right now, at least in one part of our culture, is to say something along the lines of, well, if they had just done X, Y, or Z, they wouldn't be in this predicament. And if I help them out, I'm just reinforcing bad behaviors. Now, that entire statement might be true. There might be truth to parts of that statement. But why do we often say it that way? I think oftentimes we say it that way, not because we don't want to hurt them worse than they have already hurt themselves, but because we think we're better than they are. We're mocking them for our success. We're mocking them for their failure. Now, it may be appropriate in those situations to sit down with them and instead of just giving them money, help them reprioritize their life or maybe help them budget if it's a financial difficulty. But someone else's mistakes or your successes are no reason to turn your back on them. In the family, this attitude can be violent and destructive. It's the attitude the abuser uses to justify his or her sinful situation and their sinful behavior. In the non-abusive situation, it's still used to justify sin. You know, if my husband would just stop throwing his dirty socks on the floor when he comes home from work, I wouldn't be quite so cranky. If my wife would just start making sure my laundry is folded neatly in my dresser, I wouldn't be late for work. This mockery, this blaming others for our bad behavior is a mark of the fall. It's the first thing Adam did. This woman you gave me, God. And we show contempt for God when we mock others for their situation. Because according to the second half of 1633, God is the one who made the decision to put people in their testing. When we mock others for their misfortune, we are showing that he despised, that we despise God's sovereign control over their lives, over our lives. We also mock the wisdom he shows by seeking to work wisdom in our lives, by putting us together, by putting us in this situation of testing. Beware that you don't fail God's testing by doubling down on your folly and wickedness or mocking the other person. So how do we know we're testing well? Well, the first way we know that we're testing well is found in 1633. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. We have a tendency to think about flipping coins when we, we read these passages about casting the lot uh, in order to make decisions. And if you're anything like me, you take it to a very, very far sinful uh, end to the, 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 the coin tossing that goes on. Heads or tails? Heads, I'm going to turn left. Tails, I'll turn right. Oh, it's tails. I really want to go left. Uh, best two out of three. All right, best three out of five. Uh, four out of seven. Come on. No. And we do that. We try to manipulate it. We try to use it as allowing chance to determine what is going on. Now, we don't have to do that to determine where God wants us to go in life. We have his revealed will. We have the Holy Spirit. If you were one of God's children, you have the Holy Spirit who has regenerated your heart to help you see and apply God's will to your situation. But the Israelites had that in a different form, in a different way, and God provided for them a means of casting lots to make decisions. They called it the umim and the thumim. You know, I couldn't get coin toss right, but I got umim and thumim right. That's pretty good. Now, we don't know what these lots look like. We don't know how they worked, but we do know that God allowed the Israelites to cast lots for certain decisions. We know in Leviticus that the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement was chosen by lot. We know in the, in the book of Joshua that the inheritance of the tribes, the land that they would gain, were chosen by lot. The selection of the temple gatekeepers in First Chronicles 26, we are told, was done by lot. 
But this verse tells us that this seemingly random way to make these decisions in the Old Testament was guided by God. It's every decision is from the Lord. And so God can be trusted in these things. And how we apply this to growing trust in God is to remember that regardless of the family situation that you are in right now, regardless of the struggle that you have in your family right now, God is sovereign over it. Do you have a child that is wandering from the faith? God is sovereign over that and he can be trusted. Are you in the middle of a big fight with your spouse and barely able to fake a smile in order to come to church today? God is sovereign over that and he can be trusted. What family strife is pushing you to the limits and straining the limits of your patience and sanctification? God is sovereign over all those situations and he can be trusted to see you all the way through. The second way that we test well is through the development of patience and self-control. Verse 1632 talks about a patient and self-controlled person is better than the person who wins at all costs. It says, better is a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. We all have that friend that, that fights absolutely everything. Sometimes it's me. But Solomon says here, in those times of testing within your family, patience and self-control are a mark of a better person, are a mark of sanctification and growth, and are far better than the person who always not only jumps into the argument, but wins the argument. Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Having control over your temper will lead to the house of peace that's described there in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, this doesn't mean that we just stuff our feelings or ignore the wrongs in these interpersonal conflicts. It means that we control the anger that we feel and seek constructive resolutions rather than the destruction of folly and wickedness. It's highlighted even more in chapter 17, verse 2, where the verb rule over is the same as the verb controls in the verse in chapter 16, verse 32. A wise servant will rule over, will control a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. For Rehoboam, he could not control his greed and his desire for power. And God took the larger portion of the kingdom away from him and gave it to one of Solomon's servants, Jeroboam. But this also reminds us that we either control ourselves or God will send somebody to control us. You know, where are you tempted to anger? Where are you tempted to selfishness? Where are you tempted to greed? God has given you the tools to overcome and to control those things and to enter the testing that we receive within our families in a way that brings him honor and glory. And we know that we have this power because we are no longer slaves to sin, as we read in our reading from Romans earlier. We are sons of God. And part of the inheritance that we have as sons of God is a renewed heart that can control these things that get out of hand in family conflict. The anger that we have, the, the frustration that we have in the family, they are, they are ours to be controlled through the work of the Holy Spirit and the regeneration of our heart. Because of Jesus, we have the power to pursue wisdom and righteousness and to see the inheritance of perfected holiness that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. We just finished a, a Bible study on Sunday nights about, about avoiding these types of interpersonal conflicts, whether it's within family or within friends, or within the church. And, and he talked in there about being hijacked by our emotions. Have you ever, you ever just found yourself five or ten minutes into a tirade not understanding how you got there? It's because your emotions have a tendency to hijack the rest of your brain. But God has given us the means to recognize that and to kind of cut it off at the pass as it happens. Ask yourself, if you find yourself angry, why am I angry? I had to learn over a period of 
26 and a half years that my anger oftentimes is not anger. It's hurt. It's disappointment. It's some other emotion, but my go-to response is anger. Because in our culture, anger is far more acceptable than hurt or sadness or frustration, especially in men. It's a, uh, it's a cross that we bear. It's a part of our culture that I wish was not there. But I, through the work of God, through the work of Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, have been given the tools by which to interact with those emotions so that I can have a house of peace and not a house of strife, as we're reminded in 17.1. Now, one thing before we wrap up, developing trust in God, growing in patience and self-control does not include staying in a dangerous situation. If, if, if the strife in your house, if the testing in your house has led to violence, leave. Get out. Be safe. Call the police if you have to. Call the leadership of the church to help with accountability and restoration. But get out. Taking and hiding abuse is not patience. It is not self-control. It is dangerous. Solomon reminds us that we are in a lifelong pursuit of wisdom. He gives us symbols of failing and he shows us symbols of testing well. And because we are adopted as sons, we should walk the lifelong path of growing in patience and self-control. As I mentioned earlier, I have been involved in families in one way or another for all of my life. And living together as a family is not often easy. It's not easy on the church either. We are a group of people who are gathered around the glorious message of salvation through Jesus Christ. We are a regenerated regenerated people. We are given a new heart and we are focused or should be focused on unity through humility. But we still have that old man that we are called to take off in order to put on the new man. Our sinful nature still bubbles through. We're still influenced by sin, even though we are not dominated by sin. We're selfish. We're focused on our own agenda. And we are unwilling oftentimes to control our sinful desires and passions. And God is working holiness in each and every one of us through that, through this church family as well. Is there someone in this family that just gets on your nerves? Ask God what he wants to show you and of what you need to repent. In their book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim and Kathy Keller talk about being changed in family relationships. How many of you entered your marriage if you're married and say, she or he is never going to change me? I'm not sure I said that or not. I, you know, It's been 26 and a half years. Maybe I'm in denial. The Kellers make the declaration that family interactions will change you. There's no avoiding that reality. But for the people of God, it's not your spouse, it's not your parents, it's not your children, it's not your fellow church members who are the ones doing the changing. God's using them to change you. He has sovereignly determined that you will be holy as he is holy And the removal of the impurities will happen in the crucible of the family, whether it's your nuclear family or the extended family of this church. I implore you today, brothers and sisters, trust him as you struggle. Work with the Holy Spirit to develop patience and self-control. Rest in the life-changing power of the cross as your pride and selfishness and anger are put to death and replaced with humility, self-control, and patience. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, I thank you for family. I thank you for my parents and my brothers and sisters, brother and sister. I thank you for my wife and my children, and I thank you for this church family. And I thank you that you work holiness in my life through each of these families. Lord, I am full of of pride and selfishness and anger, and yet I desire to be full of humility, self-control, and patience. So remind me that you test me in the crucible of the family and strengthen me for the lifelong walk. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Come, ye thankful people, come. That is the call that God gives to us. We are to approach God's throne, even bringing him our anxieties with thanksgiving. So let us stand and sing and be reminded of the gratitude that we have toward God in the singing of hymn number 525, Come, ye thankful people, come. verse of our passage today reminds us that uh, children's children are a blessing and children your parents are your blessing as well and it's a reminder that for those who pursue righteousness within their families oftentimes they establish a long line of wise righteous people so look back on your own family and think and thank God for the righteous people who established your family line, uh, your family line of righteousness, and pray that God brings righteousness to you so that you might establish a righteous family line as well. As you go this week, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the peace that John sought after seeing the horrors of history in the book of Revelation were brought to him by the prayer. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.